Good afternoon. It's good to be with you today under the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the prayer of the Apostle Paul from verses 14 to 19. If you'll give me just a few minutes to get there and to set the table for you. My assignment is to address the Puritans on the Christian life. And what I am going to say today will dovetail with much that you have already heard. Uh, Ian Hamilton's message this morning, John Piper's message last night. You will hear echoes in this message of things that you have already heard, and that's good. We need to hear the truth over and over again. God is a good teacher, and so he repeats himself, and he repeats himself especially on matters of great importance, and the Christian life is a matter of great importance. The Puritans, as writers, excelled in producing literature designed to help the Christian live the Christian life. John Owen's Communion with God, Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which we heard Jeff refer us to this morning and and which has this wonderful statement from Brooks in his address to the reader at the beginning of that book where he says, Beloved in our dearest Lord, Christ, the Scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here nor happy hereafter. It is my work as a Christian, but much more as I am a watchman, to do my best to discover the fullness of Christ, the emptiness of the creature, and the snares of the great deceiver." So if if Jeff's message didn't make you want to go read Precious Remedies, I hope that that will make you want to go read Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And much of what he does is examine the heart and do spiritual heart surgery on us as we face temptation and trial in that book. Matthew Henry's A Method for Prayer with Scriptural Expressions, another great Puritan classic dealing with an important aspect of the Christian life. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Samuel Rutherford's letters, not written as an instruction manual on the Christian life, but you will perhaps know that C.H. Spurgeon said that Rutherford's letters were the nearest thing to inspired scripture ever written by uninspired man. I hope that makes you want to go read Samuel Rutherford's letters. Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed. And modern books on this topic too, like Sinclair Ferguson's John Owen on the Christian life and J.I. Packer's A Quest for Godliness, the Puritan vision of the Christian life. We do not lack for expositions, primary or secondary, of the Puritan vision for the Christian life. It is also true in a real sense that most 
of the Westminster Confession of Faith is designed to cover the issue of the Christian life. You can make a case that at very least, chapters 9 to 33 are designed to do this. Uh, The Westminster Confession in chapters 1 to 18 outlines Christian doctrine in chapters 19 to 33. It outlines Christian living and the last things. But there's a real sense in which much of that doctrinal exposition, especially beginning with effectual calling in chapter 10, is designed to tell you how to live the Christian life. And of course, the catechisms are built around the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments to teach people to teach Christians what to believe, how to pray, and how to live. And of course, Christian pastors have been using those for 1,700 years to help the people of God live the Christian life. Why? Because understanding the doctrine of the Christian life is vital for living the Christian life. And understanding the doctrine of the Christian life is also vital to shaping the aims and practices of our pastoral ministry. And I'm assuming that there are a lot of people in this room that are in pastoral ministry in local churches as pastors and elders serving the Lord's people. And it's good for those of us who are to ask ourselves from time to time, what am I aiming to produce by my ministry? What are we aiming for in our ministry? What are we hoping to see produced in the hearts and lives of the people that we serve? What do we want them to look like as a result of our ministry to them and our shared life with them? And the Apostle Paul himself addresses that question in various places in his writings. One very important place is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge, or you could translate it, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I think even just hearing that verse quoted, you can already perceive the connection of that to what John preached last night about the spiritual affections. What Paul wants to see produced in believers is a spirit-wrought Christian love that proceeds from our innermost being, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. In other words, Paul is saying the goal of the truth that we teach is to see disciples who love. That is, they live self-giving lives for God and for others. Now, Christian love is a whole-souled, self-giving delight in God in response to his matchless self-giving in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And a consequent and accompanying self-giving in the best interests of others. Paul says that kind of love comes from truth that by the Spirit has taken hold of the inner man, our inmost being moving us 
from our natural and sinful self-centeredness to a self-giving. Paul's saying, that's what I'm shooting for, Timothy. That's why I teach the doctrine that I teach. That's why I expound the scripture that I expound because I want to see that worked into the hearts of Christians and then out into their lives from their hearts. Now, Paul's doctrine of adoption affords another way to think about our pastoral objectives in ministry to God's people. If we aim at bringing those given by the Father to the Son into the love of the Father for the Son, which we experience in coming to the Father by the Father's drawing, through the Son whom the Father sent, by the Holy Spirit sent by the Father in the name of the Son, and that's what we aim to do in ministry. And that's, of course, just coming right out of John 17, 24 to 26. This is what Jesus is praying in the upper room, not just for his disciples there, but all who come to faith in him through them. That's us. So he's praying that for us in the upper room. We want to see that happen in the, minist- in the lives of the people that we're ministering to. We want that to happen to them. My friend Scott Swain, meditating on John 17, 24, says this. All that the triune God has done in creation and redemption... And all that the triune God will do in consummating all days and all things. And that is just as encompassing a statement as the one that John shared from John Howe last night. So just think about this for a second. All that the triune God has done in creation and redemption and all that the triune God will do in consummating all things are aimed at You want to know the answer to this question. Are aimed at bringing those given by the Father to the Son into the love of the Father for the Son. All of it. That ought to have an impact on how I do ministry. I need to bear that in mind when I'm ministering to the people of God. If that's God's aim in everything that he's doing, I want to remember that when I'm ministering in his name to the people of God, preaching the word to them, praying with them when they're sick, correcting them when they stray, encouraging them when they're downcast. I'm wanting to remember what God is up to in their lives so that the ministry of the word is fruitful in their lives. And again, this is just John 17, 24 to 26. Remember it? Jesus says, Father, I desire that they may see my glory, which you have given to me, for you loved me from before the foundation of the world. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. Now, if I had said something like that on my own without the warrant of inspired scripture, you might think me a heretic. 
But that's Jesus saying that. He wants you to know the love of the Father for you as the Father loved him. So to put it another way, if a gospel minister wants to see sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation brought into a communion of love with the triune God by looking to faith in Jesus, and if healthy piety and maturity in the Christian life is the response of the believer to the theology and experience of God's love in Christ, and that response is expressed in love to and for Christ, then we really need to understand John 17, 24 to 26 and how that impacts the way that we do ministry. By the way, one, uh, he's not a Puritan, but certainly a debtor and a successor to the Puritans, Robert Murray McChain thought about his whole ministry in this way. Uh, If you haven't read Jordan Stone's books on Robert Murray McChain, you're missing a blessing. Jordan Stone is a pastor in Dallas, Texas. He studied under Stephen Yule, who has already ministered to you at this conference. And he did his PhD under Stephen Yule on Robert Murray McChain. And that thesis has found its way into a book called A Communion of Love. There's also a smaller book published by Reformation Heritage, Heritage Books called Love to Christ, Robert Murray McChain and the Pursuit of holiness, but in the book, The Communion of Love, here's how Jordan Stone characterizes McChain's whole approach to gospel ministry in his local congregation. He draws attention to the crucial place that love for Christ occupies in McChain's spirituality. And he says this his theology centered on knowing God's love in Christ. So that's his theology, centering on knowing God's love in Christ. And his spirituality was essentially his return of love to Christ. So he wants his congregation to know the love of God for them in Christ so that they do what? Return love to Christ. That's amazing. It's simple. It's biblical, but it's profound. So for McChain, the pursuit of holiness is simply the mature expression of what it means to know the love of Christ and to return love to Christ. That's the pursuit of holiness. Well, this prayer of the Apostle Paul that we are about to study together is yet another place where you see Paul's aspirations for the people that he is ministering to. And there's a real sense in which this prayer elaborates 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that short statement about what he wants to see from his instruction. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. This Prayer elaborates that and especially presses down into the depths of the heart of the believer and asks, how does God actually do that? How how does the Spirit use inspired truth 
to do that, produce that in the hearts of believers. And, and so this is a wonderful place to see Paul's aspirations for the work of the ministry of God's Word and Spirit in the lives of God's people. They are spelled out in what is an astounding petition. And that's what I want us to read and study together today. So let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we prepare to hear his word. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but your word stands forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of God, hear it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That... And look for the that's in this prayer. That, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Your prayers reveal what you care about the most. We pray about what we care about. You show me a Christian mother with a seriously ill child, and I'll show you a woman who's praying for her child because she loves her child. She cares about that child. She treasures that child. She delights in that child. And so she lifts that child up to the Lord in prayer. And it, and it reveals what she cares about. Well, interestingly, Paul's prayers also reveal what he cares about. And in this case, it reveals what he cares about in terms of his ministry in this congregation and to us. And, and ultimately, this prayer, of course, because it's prayed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and therefore is inspired Scripture, it reveals not just what Paul cares about, it reveals what God cares about. 
So it's not just Paul who wants this for you as a result of faithful scriptural ministry in the church. It's God who wants this for you as a result of faithful biblical ministry in the church. Paul's prayer is about something that God wants you to know and to have and to be. And so I want to draw your attention to four petitions in particular. There's a sense in which this prayer, it's all going to verse 19. The whole prayer is heading to verse 19. But I want, to, I want you to see four steps along the way. First, in verse 16, I want you to see the prayer for his strengthening spirit. In verse 17, I want you to see the prayer for the indwelling Christ. At the end of verse 17, going all the way to the beginning of verse 19, I want you to see the, a prayer for your grounding in Christ's love. And in the second half of verse 19, I want you to see the culminating petition, the prayer for your filling with the fullness of God. So his strengthening spirit, the indwelling of Christ, your grounding in Christ's love, and your being filled with the fullness of God. Now before we get to those petitions, notice how Paul starts the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Notice that Paul begins this prayer exactly like Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You remember the disciples were struck by Jesus' prayer uh, prayers. They came to him and they said, we've never heard anybody pray like you. Would you teach us how to pray, Lord Jesus? And he said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. And that's how Paul begins the prayer. I bow my knees before the Father. But did you notice the Trinitarian shape of this prayer? He bows his knees before the Father, verse 14, that the Spirit, verse 16, would cause Christ, verse 17, to indwell your hearts by faith. Verse 19, so that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. The Father, the Spirit, the Son, the fullness of God. There is a Trinitarian shape to this prayer. And indeed, there is a Trinitarian shape to the Christian life. The Christian life is Trinitarian. I think that I could give you a definition or at least a description of Christianity in one sentence using the doctrine of the Trinity. It would go like this. We come to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity. We come to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. This prayer is Trinitarian in shape, and it reminds us that the doctrine of the Trinity is not something speculative to be left to the experts but it's actually part of the warp and the woof of the Christian life. And you even see that in Jesus' commanded prayer to his disciples, pray our Father. Now let's look at these four 
aspects of this singular prayer, maybe four parts of the petition, beginning with verse 16, his strengthening spirit. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul asks that you would be given power by the Spirit in order to be strengthened in your inmost being. And you need to go ahead and start asking yourself a couple of questions. Number one, power for what? And number two, how come Paul is asking for me to be strengthened by the Spirit? I thought I was already sealed by the Spirit. Remember, go back to chapter 1, verse 13, we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, Paul is praying for Christians. I want you to be strengthened with the, by the power of the Spirit in your inner being. And just go ahead and start asking, why is he asking for me to be strengthened by the Spirit if I've been sealed by the Spirit? And, and then ask, let yourself ask this question too. Why does he want me to be strengthened? And get a little nervous about that. I mean, are, are, are you about to face a trial? Are you about to face suffering? Are you about to face persecution? You remember the context of Samson's last prayer, Judges 16, 28. Lord, strengthen me just one more time. And it came in a dire circumstance in which he was imprisoned by the enemies of the people of God and the enemies of God, and he was going to finally act as a judge again one more time. And of course, he brings the, the house down on the idolaters and dies with them. Lord, strengthen me just one more time. Why is Paul asking us or desiring for us to be strengthened with power in the inner being. The Puritans spent a lot of time thinking about this. You see this in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In the larger catechism, question 195, the Assembly of Divines cite this passage and say that this petition entails that by his Spirit, we may be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation. By the way, one of the best commentaries on the Westminster Confession is the Scripture references. If you want to know what the Confession is teaching, look at the Scripture references. And then even better, you can look at their exposition of Scripture through the Scripture references. And they are reflecting centuries of Christian reflection on what the Bible teaches on a variety of topics. The confession also cites this passage in chapter 13. No surprise, that's the chapter on sanctification. And it cites this passage saying that Believers, by the work of the Spirit, are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces. So we need that to live the Christian life. We need the strengthening of the Spirit. 
In other words, to live the Christian life, you need power within you that does not come from within you. Our culture says, look within and find strength within to face the bad stuff out there. The scripture says the strength that you need within does not come from within. It comes from without. It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit within you. He's the one who strengthens you for the living of these days. He's the one who enables you against temptation. He's the one who enables you to be quickened and strengthened in all saving graces. And the Spirit often uses the afflictions of this life to wean us from the affections of this life. I I got to watch Margaret in the pediatric intensive care unit at Blair Batson Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, hold her two-year-old boy in her arms as he died. They had found him two days earlier, face down in the swimming pool at home. And he lingered for two days. And Margaret's one of the godliest women I've ever met. And uh, it was my privilege to be there when, when the machine flatlined. And, you know, the doctors and nurses in the, in, the, in the neonatal intensive care unit and the pediatric intensive, they're tough folks. They have seen a lot of hard things. But there wasn't a dry eye in that room. Everybody, or nurses, the doctors were gathered around Margaret as that little boy took his last breath. And as he did, she was in a rocking chair, just rocking him back and forth in her arms. Just think of that. In, in his short life, she brought him into this world. And that little boy died in her arms. And she looked up at me and she said, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? And I thought, I have no business being in this room with this woman. It's like being in the presence of Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he fell down and worshiped God. That was what it was like to be in the room with Margaret. How did she do that? The strengthening of the spirit with power within. Or Jill, whose little boy was diagnosed with cancer when he was four. And he fought the good fight for many months. And then the day came when the Lord called him home. And Jill's testimony of trusting God through that has been a witness to thousands of people in our community. Because she trusted God through it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. How did she do that? By the strengthening of the Spirit with power in her inmost being. And pastors, that's what the Lord does in our lives. You remember what Luther said? Ministers are not made by reading books, but by living and dying and being damned. Now, Luther had a way of saying things, didn't he? He could be a little provocative, but you know what he's getting at. 
What he means is the Christian life is made in the crucible. So elsewhere he says, prayer, meditation, and temptation. And by temptation, he doesn't just mean temptation to sin. He means trials and suffering, hard providences, dark providences. Prayer, meditation, and temptation make the minister, he says. How does the minister bear up? Through the strengthening of the spirit with power in the inmost being. So there's Paul's first part of this petition for the strengthening spirit. The second part, for the indwelling of Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is, the Spirit's strengthening of us with power is especially to the end that Christ will dwell in our hearts. Larger Catechism, question 191, which is expounding the Lord's Prayer, says what this passage in Ephesians 3 especially means. It's a prayer that Christ would rule in our hearts, our affections, here and now, thy kingdom come. Christ, rule in my heart, rule in my affections, here and now. For the Puritans, the Christian life is fought at the level of the affections. The affection, that's the level where we win it or we lose it. What are the affections? What we want the most, what we treasure the most, what we delight in the most, what we long for the most, what we yearn for the most, what we worship and value above everything else. Before there's a decision, there's a want to. And, and those affections can lead you astray. That, that, that's why the, the pagan Greeks used to say, whom the gods would destroy, they answer their prayers. Now, why did they say that? Because what you want can kill you. What, what you delight in and treasure and long for and desire more than anything else can kill you if it's the wrong thing. And Paul knows that. And so he knows that the Christian life is fought at the level of the heart, of the affections. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what is that prayer for? It's a prayer and the confession says this in chapter 26 on the communion of the saints, that, that we would have fellowship with Christ in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And in larger catechism, 
question 75, it says, this is a prayer that those graces would be stirred up and increased and strengthened. The Puritans said that this petition, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, was a prayer that Christ would be formed in the hearts of believers. And then listen to this phrase, and that our hearts would become suitable habitations for Christ. What do they mean by that? They mean that Christ in his indwelling in our hearts takes hold of our affections so that we love what he loves. We desire what he desires. We long for what he longs for. We aspire to what he aspires to. Because Paul knows the Christian life is fought at the level of the desires. Many years ago, my wife and I were looking to buy a house. And on one occasion, our realtor took us to a a nice home that was in need of serious attention and repair. And we walked in and there were garish wall paper, dated floor treatments, very much out of date plumbing and and bathroom and and kitchen. And And I knew immediately this is far beyond my DIY ability. I cannot do this myself. This is way above what I'm able to do. There's no way we can go here. So we were there very briefly and out. And then a young couple in my church bought the house. And I thought, I better be ready for some marital counseling. (laughs) And I watched them for two years work on that house. I don't think there was any time when I ever passed by that house that they weren't tearing something out, taking it to the street, working on something in the interior, the exterior, the yard. And about two years later, they invited us to come over for supper. And I I was nervous at the thought of going in and looking at that place, and when I went in, it was amazing. The window treatments were perfection. The wallpaper, the rugs, the furnishing, the fixtures in the bathrooms and in the kitchens. And the thing about it was, it was not just nice. It looked like her. She had impeccable, they were were not just hardworking, she had impeccable taste. And so when I went in, I said, this looks exactly like what she would do with decorating a home. Looks exactly like her. The Puritans are saying that they want Christ to so take control of your affections that if someone were able to look into your inmost being, into your heart, into your affections, they would say, huh, This looks like a place that Jesus would be comfortable living. This looks like a home furnished by Jesus. These desires look like Jesus' desires. That we would become a suitable habitation for Christ. So for the strengthening spirit, for the indwelling Christ, and then verses 17 to 19, for grounding in Christ's 
love. The Christian life is dependent upon a power deep inside of us that does not come from us, but from the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is fought at the level of the desires, and the Christian life is dependent upon a personal experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. This is a prayer for grounding in Christ's love. Listen to the exorbitant language. Being rooted and grounded in love, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, just don't skip over any of that. What, what, what does he mean to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Just listen to that again. I want you to know a love that surpasses your capacity to know. By the way, that's similar to something he says in Philippians, where he says he wants the peace that passes understanding to guard your hearts. Here, he says, I want you to know a love that is beyond the capacity of your full comprehension. That is clearly the language of experience. What's being prayed for here is the apprehension of Christ's love for you in order that you might know a love that surpasses knowing. It is an experiential knowledge of Christ's love. And the confession of faith speaks to this in in the chapter that Joel expounded, chapter 18, section 3, on assurance. It, It says that the Spirit enables us to know the things that are freely given us of God. This is one of the things freely given us of God. He freely gives us his love, but it's the Spirit who enables us to know the things freely given us of God. I get to be on every continent about once every 18 months, and I get to meet Christians all over the world. And I meet wonderful Christians everywhere I go. And I meet many of them who very evidently love the Lord, who struggle to feel the love of God for themselves. And the Apostle Paul thinks that's a problem. In marriage counseling, I will often ask, especially the young woman in the couple, and usually just by ourselves, you'll understand why in just a minute, um, do you mind if I ask a personal question? And when given permission, I'll say, do you know that your fiancé loves you? I mean, really know that your fiancé loves you. And most of the time, I'm happy to report, the young woman says, you know, she usually blushes and says, yes, yes, I, I, I know he loves me. And when she says that, I know two things. Number one, he must be doing an okay job. 
Number two, she has been loved by someone in her family, probably her father, the way that a woman is intended to be loved and valued. And therefore, she knows what that feels like already because her father has loved her that way. And so she recognizes it in a man. This man loves me like my father loves me. But a lot of the times, godly, mature, wonderful Christian young women will look at me and they'll say, I I really want to know that. I really want to feel that. And he's really, really trying hard. But I'm having a hard time with that getting through. And when young women say that to me, I know somewhere in their past, probably with their father, they have not experienced the love that God intended a woman to experience. And therefore, it's very hard for her to receive that from someone else. The same is true in the Christian life. It is really, really important to know the love of God for us. It makes all the difference in the world. Have, have, have you ever experienced serving someone who you know loves you as opposed to serving someone to try to get them to accept you. The one is life, the other will kill you. You know, when the, when the little child brings the, you know, three-year-old walks into the kitchen with a picture, mommy, I drew a picture of you, and she looks at it, and it looks like Sasquatch. And she says, oh, honey, that's so wonderful. Let's put it right up on the refrigerator. There's, there's, she's not putting it up there because it's a great work of art. She, she loves that child and she delights in that child and the things that the child does, she accepts and receives. And what does it make the child want to do? It wants to make, the child can't do enough for her. That, that's why I asked that question to married couples. You know, if, if, if a woman knows that a man really loves her, she will cut him all kinds of slack when he messes up. She will. Because she knows that he loves her. But if you've been in a relationship where you've tried to get someone to accept you, it'll kill you. One of the godliest women in my congregation and admired by all the other ladies in the church, the wife of an elder, um, a real leadership abilities, a, a gifted Bible teacher to the women in the congregation, looked up for counsel. One Sunday after the service, I was speaking with her, and she was very emotional, and, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, my mother just said something to me that she's never, ever said in my life. And then she just began to weep. And so I waited, and I knew her story. Her, her father left the family when she was a teenager. Her mother was very bitter about it. My friend was converted just a year or so later, and then as a Christian, really wanted to serve her unbelieving mother as best as she could and had done so dutifully for over 30 years. 
And she said, my mother said to me this week, thank you. And she has never said that to me before. Now you just think, you serve somebody for 30 years and you get one thank you. She was bitter. And it, 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 here's this incredibly gifted godly woman and it has crumpled her soul to serve in that setting. But, but when you serve the Father who loves you, you know that he takes delight in what you do. We love because he first loved us. Or listen again to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 26. I have made your, known, your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And the apostle Paul has already said in Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five, that in love, God predestined before the foundation of the world, his blessings on you. You cannot get ahead of God's love for you. I love what Gerhardus Voss said. Why does the Christian know that God will not stop loving you? Because he never started. There was never a time when he did not love you. Always thou lovest me. And think of what this has done to Paul's heart. He can say this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, not us, me, and gave himself for me. Paul wants you, Christian, to know that. And the Puritans understood that's absolutely vital for living the Christian life. The Christian life is hobbled without a personal experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. It's very easy to sing, and so many of us have sung it since we were little children. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. You know, in in every Christian, every Christian to some degree, every real Christian believes that. And yet many really struggle to believe the wholeness of that truth, the fullness of that truth, that he loved me and gave himself for me. And the Apostle Paul wants truth worked deep down into your bones and into your heart so that you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? We're finally there, verse 19. All of this is leading up to verse 19. You're filling with the fullness of God. What in the world does that mean? I was gratified in conversation with John Piper that he too has puzzled over that phrase. I have been studying that phrase for 
over 35 years. And I'm pretty sure that I don't know all that it means, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Yes, I know that he talks about the fullness in chapter 1. Yes, I know he is going to talk about the fullness of Christ in chapter 4. I still struggle to know all that Paul is saying. Vincent Alsop, a Puritan author, wrote an entire treatise on that phrase called, What is that fullness of God every true Christian ought to pray and strive to be filled with? And he tells me that the answer is both general and particular, that that fullness entails more faith, more love, more patience, more self-denial, more heavenly-mindedness, that it entails our not having a spirit of bondage but liberty and freedom as heirs and sons, that it entails the Spirit's operations being in us, not just in one or a few areas, but manifold in all operations common to believers, and that in particular it means the following five things. A knowledge of God's will, that we know and agree with the will of God because of the authority of God, and we find our duty a delight. Second, that we have wisdom in the doing of God's will so that we are not only inclined to do God's will, but we are wise in the way that we do it. Third, that it involves spiritual understanding of the covenant of grace in relation to the will of God so that we understand experientially that there is covenant grace for covenant duties and covenant pardon for those imperfections that attend them. That, that's why Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. You can tell me to do anything you want to tell me, Lord, as long as you will enable me to do it. And then he also prayed, Lord, all the good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. Fourth, that we may be pleasing to the Lord. That just as the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we too would know the pleasure of God in the fulfillment of our duties. And finally, that there would be grace in the root, grace in the fruit, grace in the habit, strengthen grace in the exercise of our lives multiplied. Now, after reading that treatise, I'm still not sure what the phrase, the fullness of God, means. But let me give you some context. Theologians often uh, reflect on what the essence of the fall was, of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. And over the centuries, theologians have said that the essence of the fall can be found in pride, unbelief, idolatry, and disobedience or transgression. By that, they mean in the fall, on the one hand, you have Adam and Eve acting pridefully, thinking that they're smarter than God. God says, don't eat it. 
I think I'm smarter than him, so I'm going to eat it. They act in unbelief. God had commanded them and warned them, in the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. They did not believe him. There is also idolatry. They worshiped not God. They listened not to his voice. They worshiped their wills. We've already heard that phrase used here in the conference, will worship. The Puritans talked about it all the time. Worshiping what we want. Will worship, idolatry. And then, of course, there's disobedience or transgression. They expressly violated an express command and prohibition of God. So it was disobedience or transgression. But notice what is also a part of this. In the temptation of Satan to Adam and Eve, their affections are placed on something other than God. When Satan speaks to them in Genesis 3, he first distorts God's word and then he directly contradicts God's word in order to create in their hearts a dissatisfaction with God. Did God say... You may not eat of all the trees of the garden. When, when listen, the prohibition starts out this way. You may eat of all the trees of the garden. Isn't that an interesting way to start a prohibition? Chapter two, you may eat of all the trees of the garden, except for one. Satan starts out, did God tell you you couldn't eat of all the trees in the garden? It's the exact opposite of what God has said. It's designed to make them think, Why would God have done that? Seems unreasonable. Maybe even stingy. Why would he have made that prohibition? And then, you will not die. For God knows that if you take that fruit, you will become like him. Knowing good and evil. Now, what should Adam and Eve have said to Satan at that point? They should have said, What do you mean we'll become like him? We already are like him. Go back and look at chapter one, Mr. Snake. We are made in the image of God. You will never meet creatures on this earth that are more like God than we are. We are made in his image. But that phrase, knowing good and evil, is like the name of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think what that's pointing to is the tree is a test to see who gets to decide what is good and what is evil. God or us. And listen, God speaks that command to Adam. And then when God speaks to Adam as he brings his judgment on them, one of the things he says is, because you listen to the voice of your wife. Now, what he is not saying, husbands, is on never ever listen to your wife. That is not what he is saying. What he's saying is, your wife's voice said the opposite of what my voice said, and you listen to her, not me. In other words, you chose to determine on your own parts what is right and wrong instead of listening to what I said is right and wrong. And the the whole temptation by Satan is designed 
to cause Adam and Eve to think that they will enjoy greater blessedness in disobedience than they ever could in obedience. And that there is some blessing greater than that blessing which God has already given to them. In other words, the serpent is tempting them to believe that God is not worth living for, that there is something better than God, there is something better than he has provided and offered. And notice that this is exactly how Satan's temptation of Jesus goes down in Matthew and Luke 4. In Matthew 4, 4, Satan says, notice there are a lot of rocks around here, Jesus. You must be awful hungry after 40 days and nights of fasting. But if you are the son of God, you can turn these stones into bread. Now, two, three chapters later, as, as Jesus is teaching his disciples to trust in God's providence, he says to them, your father gives good gifts and, and even a human father, when his child asks for a loaf of bread, will not give him a stone. Now listen to the serpent again. A lot of stones around here, Jesus. Don't see any bread. Guess your father hasn't provided for you what you need. But if you do what I say, if you listen to my voice, there'll be bread there'll be blessing. It's the same thing that he does to Adam and Eve. One of my friends provocatively says, Satan wasn't trying to tempt Jesus. He was trying to adopt him. To to have him reject his father and embrace Satan. To find blessing outside of his father that wasn't there. And so it's particularly striking, isn't it? That Jesus in John 4.34 says to his disciples on one occasion, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. It's like getting to sit down at a seven-course feast to do the will of God because my father loves me. Remember again what Jesus had said in John 17, 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And of course, Jesus responds in John 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by, and listen to it, every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I'm not listening to your voice, Satan. I'm listening to the voice of my father. But more than that, I'm delighting in his provision for me. I love that. I want that. I delight in that. I treasure that. I long. He he and his provision is sufficient for me. Nothing could be better than what he has provided for me. This is a battle at the level of the affections. And I think that's what Ephesians 3.19 is about. That is, we are strengthened by the Spirit in our inmost being 
so that Christ takes hold of our affections and we are able to experience the love of God in Christ for us and realize there is nothing better in this world than this. You can have all the world. Give me Jesus. There's nothing better in the world than this. My affections are set on this. And then what does that do? It matures you spiritually. It grows you up. It conforms you to God. Don Carson, in his book, Praying with Paul, which is just a study of Pauline prayers, has an exposition of this passage, and he tells the story of a friend of his who taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago named Perry Downs. Perry and Sandy uh, were foster parents, which meant that they would take, you know, children that were a few days or a few weeks old into their home until they could be placed into permanent, loving, adoptive families. It was just one of the ways that they could minister as Christians in their community. And on one occasion, the social worker called them up and asked if they could take twin boys who were not just a few days or weeks old. They were 18 months old. And could you keep them for a few months instead of a few days or weeks? Perry and Sandy said yes. The boys were brought to their home. The first night they put them into bed and they cried uncontrollably. They wept. Now, you might think, strange home, never been there before, understandable, but sadly the story was worse than that. These 18-month-old boys had been in at least seven homes in their first 18 months, and in many of them, they had been abused. And the social worker actually said, I'm afraid that the boys will never be cognitively and emotionally normal. Those boys were in the Downs home for two years, and then they were finally placed into a permanent adoptive home. And when the social worker did the post-testing, she said, this is amazing. Something amazing has happened to these boys. They are responding normally to all the tests. They're normal cognitively. They're normal emotionally. What had happened to those boys? For the first time in their lives, they had been loved like God intended children to be loved, and it had literally matured them. That is how God's love works on Christians. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want want you to be so awash in the awareness and the experience of the love of God in Christ for you that it takes hold of your affections and it matures you so that you look like Jesus, who looks like the Father. You visit my home, there is a picture of a young man in a military uniform and a young man in a blue blazer side by side, and everybody who says it, uh, sees it says to me, um, Lig, I did not know that you were in the military. And I... I always respond, I was not in the military, that's my dad. And I know the next thing they are going to say is, Lig, you look just like your father. And I love it when they say that. 
because I'm not half the man that my father was. The the Apostle Paul is saying that he wants you to be strengthened with power by the Spirit in your inmost being so that Christ dwells in your hearts and takes control of your affections and that you are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ to the extent that you are grown up into maturity, bearing the fullness of the image of God so that you look like your heavenly Father. So that when people see you living the Christian life, whether you're Margaret or Jill or you're just doing the mundane things of the Christian life and they say, what kind of a father must he have to be a person like that? That's why the Puritans understood that the Christian life is fought at the level of the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would bear fruit in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.